Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's episode. So as we're rolling into season two here, we've been weaving out uh, in and out of our childhood traumas, our adverse experiences, and we hop on one foot for a while, which is the I'm an adult and I'm an individual human and what is my trauma story and how has that been shaping my work, my worth, my relationships, etc. And then for some of us, we then hop on the other foot, which is being a parent and what we need to know and change so that we can break that trauma link that's been connecting all of us from generation to generation. And now as a parent with teenagers, um, it's no surprise that we've tackled that particular topic a little bit more than others, but not all of you have teenagers. And um, some of you might also actually be educators. And so you have experiences working with children at a lot of different stages in life. But in any case, it's not enough to just say, okay, everyone, everything we've been taught or shown about parenting, or in some case for some of us, never shown how to parent, is all wrong. So don't do that. And um, your struggles today are because of your childhood. So you didn't just turn out fine. There may be some real issues here that we want to tackle. And we can't just leave that statement and then move on without actually showing people or talking about what that new type of parenting um, should really look like. And so if you've been listening and wondering to the show, okay, well, how do I do this? What are the concrete examples of the parenting modes that don't work that I thought were okay? And what do I do if I want a child that doesn't need to go to therapy at 40 and doesn't have multiple failed relationships like, you know, some of us do? Well, I I am going to acknowledge that to do something different, something that you've never done before or were never shown can actually be a little bit scary and that you might actually feel this tendency to be locked into what you already know. And not because you believe it's really the right thing, but that you're afraid of doing something different can actually make something even worse. And so you might still be apt to fall back into what's the right punishment, what's the right control tactic to get me what I need right now because I know it works, even if it's just for a brief moment. So then you might sit there and wonder sometimes, why do I need to even change anything? Well, today I have with me an expert in parenting who can show parents how to parent without the trauma (laughs) that we've been talking about that some of us have dealt with our whole lives. And to show you um, by listening to this episode or watching us on YouTube, why the old ways don't actually work. So Dr. Laura Markham earned her PhD in clinical psychology at Columbia University and has worked as a parenting coach with countless families across the world. And presently, over 140,000 parents enjoy her free weekly coaching post that she does through emails off of her website. She's also written three books, Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids, How to Stop Yelling and Start Connecting, 
Peaceful parent, happy siblings, for those of us who have multiple kids, how to stop the fighting and raise friends for life. And now her latest book, which is the Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids Workbook, using mindfulness and connection to raise resilient, joyful children and rediscover your love of parenting. So welcome to the show, Dr. Laura. Glad to be here. Awesome. So let's start this off. The word peaceful parent, I think many people are going to joke, is actually an oxymoron, (laughs) that there's no such thing. Um, Can you actually describe what peaceful parenting actually is? Peaceful parenting does not mean that you're Zen. It does not mean that you're always um, cool and collected. It does mean that you commit not to take your own issues out on your child. We all have issues from childhood. We all get triggered. And peaceful parenting is the idea that we, we aspire, we commit to noticing what's going on with us so that we don't automatically react when we get triggered. So it's really just stop, don't react when you're triggered, and really try to notice what's going on with you. I, I tell parents that they really need to have as their top priority their own well-being and to monitor their flow of well-being. And when they start to not feel so good, when they start to feel annoyed, stressed, that's the time to take action. Because if not, you're going to take it out on your kids. There's no way around it. And, you know, there's that the Hippocratic Oath that, physicians take is first do no harm. That's what peaceful parenting is about. Yeah. And I will tell as a parent of, of trauma, you know, parenting from trauma is that is honestly one of the hardest things that I've had to tackle, you know, even going through uh, probably about every other session that I have with my own therapist as I'm working on my own self healing. And also at the same time, like I said, hopping on the other foot of, um, you know, being mom to my teenagers is that when you do have that trauma history in your background, you, you recognize now that your strong emotional response, especially to teenagers coming back at you, is you being triggered. And I converse very often with my therapist about the fact she keeps reminding me that's your little you inside of there feeling like, you know, she's being attacked again or, you know, the way that she grew up in that, you know, in that way. And it is a challenge. And I, and that's one of the reasons of having you on here is because this isn't just this Pollyanna new way of parenting. You're talking about showing trauma you know, parents that have a trauma history, how to do this, knowing and and honoring the fact that we're working against a whole lot of inertia inside of ourselves, you know, that makes it very difficult to um, sometimes maintain our cool, calm collectedness and not feel like, you know, our children are challenging us, you know, or um, disrupting our own needs or, or robbing us of our own humanity. Is that, is that right? That's absolutely right. And I think, when we're not so introspective, we think that children are misbehaving. And kids do all the time need our guidance. Kids don't make wise decisions all the time. That's true. But our overreactions are what heighten the drama. And they're never necessary. We can guide children without being punitive. We can guide children without being overreactive. 
we can guide children without losing it. Now, most of us grew up with punishment as the as kind of a standard, you know, tool in the parenting toolbox, whether it's spanking, timeouts, grounding, privileges taken away, yelling, yelling was something that was common that, you know, just raised the intensity of the room and, and kind of, and those are, you know, those are fear, you know, that's basically driving fear into a child in order to get them to comply. Um, and this was, you know, applied across the spectrum, you know, of growing up from little kids all the way through teenagers. And many people today still believe that it's okay and that they personally weren't injured by these tactics. But why are attitudes starting to change now about the fact that this isn't actually a viable form of parenting um, for our children? Well, we have at this point 40 years of research that show that it's not viable. We have research that shows that any amount of spanking makes us less emotionally resilient, less emotionally healthy. We just know that any time, any time the person who you rely on most in the world intentionally hurts you, it damages your whole idea about relationships and trust and love. So what about... Um you know, the, uh, the, the, maybe the, not the physical punishment parts of it, again, going to like, um, doing timeouts when kids misbehave. I, cause I do see a lot of frustrated young mothers with young children, um, that are, you know, sitting there going, I don't know what else, you know, how to get them to do anything. And so they, you know, this is, again, this is a tactic that we see used a lot, which is, um, you know, a, a punishment of some sort for misbehaving in there. I mean, does even a timeout have a negative consequence to a kid? Well, the research shows that it does. And what we have figured out is that kids act out, kids misbehave for a reason. And if we address that reason, they stop doing it. But time out, what is time out? We think of it as an opportunity for everybody to cool off, but there are other ways for everybody to calm down. So what it really is, is saying to the child, this is from Gordon Neufeld, who's written a lot about this. It's saying to the child, you no longer have the right to exist in my presence. Wow. That's like saying, I could just put you out there. You know, there was one parenting expert who wrote, and I'm, I'm sorry to say she didn't write about it as if it was a bad thing. She wrote about she couldn't get her four-year-old to brush her teeth. So she, and the kid was being very defiant. She put the kid out the back door on the deck. It was nighttime. It wasn't, it was, the kid was in her nightgown with bare feet. It was not winter, so it wasn't super cold out, but she puts the kid in the dark, shuts the back door and locks it. Kid's on the deck by herself, four-year-old. So what is that saying to the child? If you don't do what I tell you, I can put you out in the dark where you will have no protection, right? It's a threat of death. It's, it's a threat of abandonment for sure, but young children know that abandonment means death. They rely on us, not just to feed them, but to protect them. Mm -hmm. So time out is a threat of abandonment and ultimately death. That's what it is. And I know people say, no, it's not. She's on the naughty step right over there where she can see me, right? No problem. But why do you even have to do that, right? It, for, a, for a compliant kid, they wouldn't need a timeout for a kid who's more compliant. And for a strong-willed kid, you have to fight with them to get them to time out, right? It ends up being a power struggle, a knockdown drag out. You're dragging them over there or you're putting them in their room and locking the door, right? That's what happens when you have a strong-willed kid. 
You're, and what do you think they're doing on the naughty step or in their room? Are they thinking, wow, I really made a poor choice. I think next time I'll make a better choice. No, they're thinking it was all my brother's fault. Ever since he was born, it's been a problem. He's the problem. Mom loves him more. You wait till I get my hands on him when she's not around. And she never understands, right? Mom never understands me. No one here understands me. I hate everybody, right? There's no... And Now, if you have a compliant kid, they might actually, once they calm down, be remorseful. I hate it when mom yells at me that way and I have to go to timeout. I, I guess... I'll try so hard next time to not do that, right? And often what ends up is if they're not hating the parent, they're hate- it's about self-hatred. Mm-hmm. It's self-loathing. Like, I don't know why I'm making that mistake over and over again. I didn't mean to spill the milk or let's say something serious. I didn't mean to hit my, to, to knock the baby over, but she was about to get into my things. And right. So there are all these big emotions that we're not helping the child to deal with that are driving the behavior. And when we put them in timeout, it just adds an overlay of either rage or guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Either way, it's not a recipe for the child to become more emotionally healthy. And you know, kids can't manage their behavior until they can manage their emotions. So there are all kinds of ways to work with children to help them with their emotions. And timeout is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, we can swing the pendulum in the other direction, um, which is, um, you know, where some parents tend to go. And I can tell you from experiences, this also can be a consequence of having trauma in your own childhood, which is that you want the opposite for your kid than what you received. And so if you grew up in a house where there was a spanking timeout, screaming and yelling, compliance, and, um, and I actually, you know, as a child, I've shared this on another show, I became a very compliant child out of fear of abandonment. I, you know, hundred percent. I knew that if I misbehaved, my mother had already demonstrated she would leave, (laughs) you know, and, and I didn't want that, you know, while, you know, I have a daughter who's very strong willed. So she, you know, she'd be the one that you would have to drag. And, you know, and I, I, I love that about her. Um, but the going in the other direction, which is to become permissive because you don't want anything, you know, to, uh, you know, to, be perceived as punishment or control or anything, you know, and you're reacting against what you had received, that's not good either. And so let's talk about why the permissive, the other end of it is also, you know, bad, you know, for children and our, you know, and their development. Well, permissiveness is not setting limits. That's what it is. It's the child doesn't want to do whatever we're asking or, doesn't want to stop doing whatever we like them to stop doing. And we say, well, I guess it's not that big a deal. I don't want to fight here. Here's the cookie. Or you don't have to take a bath or whatever it is. And let's say that that choice is against our judgment, right? We're ending up saying that the kid can do things that are not that good for the child. Also, remember, self-discipline develops by having to choose the competing impulse. So here's an example. I really want this piece of cake. Hmm, but I want my health more. The health is more important to me. That's a higher value to me than eating that cake right now. So I'm going to go for the thing that's a higher value, my health. And to do that, I have to give up this cake. I'm building self-discipline. Every time your child wants something and you say, 
we're not going to do that right now. We're not going to have cookies now. Dinner is very soon. I know you're hungry. That'll help you enjoy dinner more. If you're super hungry, you can have a glass of milk while you're waiting or whatever, right? So that's that child. If now, if you, um, if you're yelling at the child, if you're, no, you can't have a cookie, the kid's going to be defiant towards you, right? Um, and they're not going to willingly go along with you. And the minute your back is turned, they're going to sneak the cookie. They're not actually developing self-discipline. They're doing what you want out of fear, right? And the minute they can, they're going to get their hands on a cookie, right? If your child, if you just say, all right, have the cookie. I know you're so hungry, right? If you do that, the child's not developing self-discipline because they're not being asked to. If you say that to the child what I said to begin with about have the glass of milk instead, um, it's almost time and I know it's hard to wait. That's called an empathic limit. You're empathizing. I know you're hungry. It's hard to wait. But you're also being very clear. Here's the boundary. Here's your limit. The child is willing to go along with you. They don't want to. They don't want to. They want the cookie. But they're willing to choose the higher value. What's the higher value? It isn't nutrition at this point. The higher value is the relationship with mom or dad. At this point, well, mom doesn't want me to have the cookie. I'm not going to sneak behind her back because mom and I trust each other. Children, even if they can't articulate it, they know they wouldn't sneak behind your back because you would be disappointed and they wouldn't want to disappoint you on that level. They try to cooperate with you. They follow your lead. After all, you're the one who they trust, who teaches them, who's always there for them, who always understands. That child is developing self-discipline. So setting limits only works if we set the limit with empathy. I know it's so hard to stop playing and clean up your toys and get ready for bed. I bet when you grow up, you'll never stop playing, will you? You'll probably play all night every night. And the kid's like, yeah, yeah. Well, I wish I could play, but mom's going to read me a bedtime story and I want that nice warm interaction with her. So the kid is willing to go along with you, giving up what they want for something they want more, the warm relationship with the parent. And when you think about it, control, can we really control another human being? We're told we're supposed to as parents, but you can't. You can't. So what can we do? We can have influence. And if you want a relationship with your teenagers where you have some influence, the best way to do that is to start now setting limits for sure, guiding them for sure, but doing it with empathy, understanding where they're coming from. So they're more likely to want to follow you. And also what they end up doing, they end up adopting your limits. They begin to think of themselves as somebody who is able to wait a little longer, delay that gratification a little longer before dinner, right? Mm -hmm. To eat a little more healthy. There's somebody who can do this. They can do hard things with your help, but it's also with your empathy. It's not just that you have high expectations. It's that you're offering them the understanding. Right. Right. I, you know, for me, my, my mode between the two extremes, um, and again, because of my trauma history is, has been to um, kind of swing a little bit towards that permissive part. Because one of the things like you talked about early, which is we, you know, as a parent, we have to be introspective, we have to know ourselves, and to know what our triggers are. And I feel like in that confrontation of setting that boundary, 
of like, you know, listen, you have to wait till Friday. You know, and in fact, I just literally had this conversation with my daughter. She wanted something now. And we've already discussed as a family, you know, I'm a single mom, two kids, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I'm not an ATM. There's finite resources in terms of dollars. And here are the things that we pay for. It's not that we're poor, but it doesn't mean that money just kind of keeps growing everywhere. There's only so much and you have to do math. Um, and so I was like, you know, I know you really want this. And I, you know, and I understand that it's frustrating to wait a week, but I, you know, payday's Friday and I'm, then I'm happy to help you out. But the pushback, you know, from her of like, well, you just did that, you know, whatever the drama was coming out of it, you know, you do feel, or, you know, I feel that rise inside of me of like the, um, the, again, the fear, the, the little girl of like, oh my gosh, now she feels the way I do. I want to spare her from feeling like this dejected, unseen, you know, 14 year old, the way I felt, should I just go ahead and do it anyways? No, 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 no. And then you have to, the parent inside is like, no, you have a boundary. <laughs> like she's going to be upset with you. You have to be okay with the discomfort of that upsetness from them. Um, but I mean, it took what, two hours. She got to be angry and upset with me. And then by the end of the day, she's like, I understand, you know, I get it. Um, and you're just like, okay, <laughs> you know, you kind of survive that moment, but it's hard again, as a parent with trauma to do that. So I, I sympathize with the parents that swing into the permissive mode because it's scary. I mean, you're scared and you're, so you're doing it out of fear of like losing that connection with your own child, or you think you're losing your connection with your child by enforcing, you know, some rules. But so that's so important because what you're describing is our discomfort with the child's big feelings. But you didn't want your child to feel unseen, unvalued, unheard. So you thought, well, I'll, I'll give her what she's asking for. But that's not what she needed. She needed to feel seen, heard, valued. And you can do that by allowing her to have her disappointment. Disappointment is not the end of the world. Sometimes disappointment is the beginning of resilience. Only though, if someone understands, right? Then you see that you can come out of the disappointment and feel hopeful still and figure out how to make your life work better, right? And maybe try again. But the, the important thing for us to remember as parents is they don't need what they're asking for, like that money today. They need to feel seen, heard, and valued. And we do that by allowing them to have their upset, by acknowledging it's hard to wait till Friday. You're so disappointed. You really wanted it now. Of course I want it now and you can give it to me now. You feel like I'm withholding it from you and that feels awful and I hear you. And I really do care about your happiness and I can't give this to you now. It's not part of our budget for me to do that. And I'm able to do it on Friday and I know it's really hard to wait, right? But I don't care. And, and she's allowed to have those negative feelings, right? But you're right. It's our inability to tolerate that that makes us be permissive. But it's not for the child's benefit. Mm -hmm. Our permissiveness. I mean, think about the classic examples of permissiveness. The child is playing with their favorite toy. It stops working. They're upset. They shake it. They, you know, try and they throw it at the wall. It breaks. And the permissive parent says what? Don't cry. Don't cry. We'll get you another one. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we can't tolerate the child's upset, right? And of course, the authoritarian parent says, you don't deserve nice things. Into, onto the timeout, the naughty corner with you, right? Mm -hmm. And then the sweet spot. What does the sweet spot parent do? And researchers call this authoritative, but I think that's too close to authoritarian. So I just say, 
empathic limits. You empathize and you set a limit. That parent says, it broke. Oh, no, you love that toy. You're so sad. I see it's broken. Oh, I know. That is really sad. You're crying. I see. No, honey. We're not buying another one. That was our jack-in-the-box, and it's broken now. I know. I know that makes you really sad. Because like, oh, oh. I know that makes you really sad. You wish you could have another one. I see. It's so upsetting. And then when the child calms down a little bit, the parent might say, you were so upset when it broke, right? It wasn't working and you didn't know what to do and then you threw it and it broke, right? And the kid's like, oh yeah, that is what happened. I guess I broke it. Because in fact, the kid's often not, when you're upset about something, you're triggered. You're, mm-hmm. you're Frontal cortex goes offline. It's an emergency, right? So the kids got the broken the toy that's not working, and they they're, they throw it out of an impulse. It's not a thought out rational thing. Their frontal cortex wasn't there watching. Their observing ego was offline, so they don't even really know what happened. Just like we don't know what happened when we get angry and we lose it at our kids and we scream at the top of our lungs. Later, we're like, "Why did I get so upset? What was going on?" Oh, right. I was so worried about that bill I got that I put in the drawer. And then my kid was asking me for something. I turned around and screamed at her. But we don't actually make the connection while we're upset. So what helps kids? Honor the feelings. Set the limit. And later, if it's necessary for teaching, you you help the child understand how it all unfolded. Because that's how they develop judgment. Good judgment comes from reflection. So we can help the child see what happened. No shame, no blame, no recriminations. Not, and then you threw it, right? What would you do next time? You won't throw it, will you? No, not necessary. No punitive anything is necessary. You say, yeah, and then you threw it. You were so mad, right? And the kid's like, yeah, I guess I don't want to do that next time, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. That's the sweet spot. Yeah. That's well- the, you know, it's not just, be a little bit mean. You know, parents often, I don't want to be punitive and I don't want to be permissive. I'll be somewhere in the middle. But somewhere in the middle is not what we're talking about. That's mm-hmm. being a little bit mean. There's no reason for that. Or a little bit permissive. Or veering back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. Like permissive until you get angry and then you yell. No, no. Punitive is you have high expectations and you don't give the child support. Permissive is you have no expectations. You give the child what they want, which isn't really support for them, but it's, they think of it as what they want. But the the sweet spot is you have those expectations. You set those limits, but you give the child all the support they need to be able to meet your expectations and hold your limits. When you are working with parents, um, you know, what some of the thoughts that came to my mind is that we, because of this pervasive, uh, you know, history of parenting certain ways, which are, you know, for the most part, punitive in nature, you know, parents can be easily shamed 
out of doing that that middle ground, that sweet spot, because somebody's got a judgment against them of like, you're being too kind to them. And I see this all the time, right? We talk about, um, you know, the gold stars, and, and, you know, people take no, you know, no hesitation at stabbing, at, you know, another parent if they think they're coddling, you know, their own kids and not because they are not punishing them or they are not, you know, uh, doing whatever those tactics are, um, which, you know, kind of like that raises my hackles and stuff. But, you know, how do you coach a parent that wants to adopt a different way of parenting their child to give them the resilience against, you know, maybe their own family, you know, that is having an issue with it, or even friends and social media around them that is like, you know, you know, no wonder your kid's a spoiled little brat or, you know, whatever they want to, you know, whatever comments that they want to make to it. I mean, what's your advice for a parent that, to be able to kind of shut that out. Cause again, when you are a trauma, you know, informed parent coming with the trauma story, everybody chirping in your ears really does make a difference. And it does erode your own confidence as a parent. Well, there are different ways to talk to different parents about this, obviously, but the research is very clear supporting the kind of parenting I've outlined. That's one thing. Another thing is that we say, Oh, well, we all got spanked and we all turned out fine. Right. But actually, look at, the, look at the rate of medication of adults in our society. And even people who aren't on prescribed medication are self-medicating often with, and I'm not talking about having a serious addiction problem. I'm talking about that glass of wine you really have to have, you know, at the end of the day, whatever. So we have lots of little addictions, even shopping, right? Mm-hmm. Little addictions that boost us, that make us feel better, that numb the pain, right? We're all carrying a lot of pain with us unless we do work on ourselves. If we're in therapy, if we're meditating every day, we can often, if you're journaling every day, if you're on a self-growth path, you can work with that and you can heal. But often we underestimate the amount of pain we're carrying or that people around us are carrying. You know, and we all think, oh, I came out fine. Well, we're just defending against the pain. We didn't come out fine, actually, if we were hit, as a for instance, or if we were yelled at, or if a parent threatened to leave us. It's just too much fear. And so we're carrying a lot of tears and fears around. And I don't think any of us want to do that to our children. So that's one thing that I would say to a parent. Another thing I would say is try it. Try an experiment where you prioritize connection where instead of trying to threaten your child into compliance or even bribe your child into compliance, instead of misusing your power that way, set your limits as necessary, but try it with empathy and understanding. So even though you're setting a limit, your child feels understood because that's all. They don't have to get everything they want, but this is something better. This is a parent who understands them no matter what. Isn't that what all of us wanted as children? And try that experiment with your child. Prioritize the connection. Listen more. When you set a limit, set it with empathy. When your child's upset, tolerate their emotions and allow them to cry. Allow them to be disappointed. When they get angry at you, instead of taking the bait and getting into a power struggle, I mean, you're the parent. Don't act like a kid. Say, you're really mad at me right now and you're yelling at me. I know you're so disappointed. We can talk about it again once we both calm down. That's it. That's it. If it's a teenager, you can stand, you can turn away at that point. If it's a two or three year old, you can't, but you can say, I know you're so disappointed. I'm right here with a hug when you're ready. Of course, you can say that to your 12 year old too. 
So the point is, try the experiment of extending more understanding and empathy, and you will see a radical shift in your child. You will. And you'll go, oh my God, this could be how it is. And you'll realize you really don't have to parent that other way. So I'm not saying announce to your child, okay, no more punishments ever. I'm saying just focus on connection and you won't need the punishments, right? And of course, the the only way you can do this kind of parenting is to work on yourself. Because otherwise, when you get triggered, you end up dishing out your own baggage. So your kids end up having to carry it. But if you can keep working on your stuff, then you don't do that. And you're role modeling emotional intelligence and your kids become more emotionally intelligent. The reason it's so important when they're little, how you parent, their brain is taking shape. Their brain is growing dramatically every day before the age of six. The brain is like just every thing that happens to them. It's like a sponge and it's just adapting to the situation. Now, the brain will change. The brain will change lifelong. I can take up, I'm not a tennis player. I could take up tennis tomorrow and my brain would notice, oh, there's a new thing going on here and it would adapt. If I played tennis every single day, my brain would adapt. It wouldn't be as good as if I started as a child, right? Mm -hmm. Like a language, same thing. Because the brain has already streamlined itself based on my prior situation. The brain streamlines and rebuilds itself at age six and at age 12. And those are really important markers. Can it change in the teen years? Absolutely. But after age 25, it changes more slowly. So in the first six years of life and then the next six and then the next six, those are diminishing but still super important times when the brain is growing and changing. And your child's brain takes shape in response to every repeated interaction. That doesn't mean if you lost it and screamed like a crazy person last night that your child is ruined for life. It does mean if you do that every night, your child will grow up with a different kind of brain than if they didn't have that experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you bring up a point that I had wanted to discuss because like I said in the intro here, we, we talk about teenagers a lot on it and only because I've got a 14 and a 16 year old at home. So it's easy for me to, to talk and share my experiences with it. Um, but they're really, you know, like you just said, there's a, that super critical development point, which is in those earliest years um, where we talk about um, their attachment and their security and, and things like that. Um, you know, I wish I could go back in time and see what happened to me in those early years. Like what was my experience like, but you know, I don't have the benefit, unfortunately, of even getting accurate information about that. Um, so let, let's talk about the the first, the first like three years of life and why uh, you know getting kind of squared away with a new model of of parenting is really important because there's a huge foundation that's built from that place forward. You know, of um, you know the quality of the connections that grow from that point begin in those and it it, honestly it's a point that terrifies me you know and 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 frightens me that oh my gosh I I I might not have done enough back then um and I and I don't want to scare parents but I do want to impart on them the importance of those early early years like you mentioned that first you know six years Um, but I've seen research where it's actually even in the first three you know that that's where you're going to get some good or bad you know or indifferent is going to happen in the first 36 months of life that's totally true And 
one of the things that happens in the first year before kids are verbal is secure attachment. You mentioned security, secure attachment. And what that means is that the child is born looking for someone to take care of them and to connect with them because they can't survive without that, right? So that's the setup biologically for all of us is to look for someone to attach to. And if that person is reliable, if we know, if they're emotionally, physically reliable, they keep us safe, they feed us, they pick us up. But picking up isn't just protection, it's also emotional sustenance. So how does that person respond to our emotions? If we feel needy, if we whine, if we cry, if we're scared, do they pick us up and comfort us? When we need something, are they responsive? Responsiveness is the most important factor in whether kids are securely attached. So response, you can't, if you're not there, you're not responsive, right? If you're, if you vanish. And if you're drunk all the time, you're not there. You know, if you have mental health issues of your own, you may not be able to be there, which is why it's so heartbreaking that we have not done enough to support moms who have postpartum depression and anxiety. Because when you're struggling with that, you can't be responsive to your child to the degree you would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it's so important that when moms struggle with that, they get help. And there is help, but we don't do enough to screen for it and to offer support. So, you know, in the first three years, yes, the child is deciding, is this, well, Einstein said, the most important question, can I trust in the universe? And Really, when you're little, what's the universe? It's your parents. Can I trust these people? Will I be taken care of? Will my needs get met? Right? Those are the questions about secure attachment. And also, does anybody see me? Do they see who I truly am? Is it okay to be who I am? Do they accept who I am? Because if they don't like me when I get mad, for instance, very common that parents They're okay if the child falls down and hurts themselves. But if the child gets angry at them, they're, don't you speak to me that way? You know, or, oh, you're having a fit of temper? We'll see about that. On to the naughty step with you or whatever. When we give the child the message that her anger, her emotions in general are not okay, she doesn't feel accepted for who she is, right? She begins to feel ashamed of who she is. So secure attachment is also related to feeling seen and accepted, valued for who you are. So that all happens in the first year to three years of life. Now, the good news, I want to give you some good news. Good. (laughs) What if we didn't get it? What if we didn't get it? What if your childhood and my childhood? I would say that I didn't get it when I was young. I was ambivalently attached. I, I could not rely on my mom to be there emotionally. Sometimes she was, sometimes she wasn't emotionally. So I did work on myself as an adult. And I think my kids are completely securely attached by any of the measures that, and I read all the measures and I used to train people to give the measures. So I know the measures well. So why is that? Because if you don't work on yourself, your kids have the same attachment classification that you do because you have your own issues, right? That you haven't worked out. So I, can, I could interview someone when they were pregnant in their second trimester before the baby comes. And I can predict with a very high degree of certainty how securely attached their child will be based on their own 
way of talking about their childhood experiences. But it's not based on what happened to them. It's based on the way they talk about it, the way they understand it, how they've come to terms with it. And that's what matters. We can all earn a secure attachment by doing the work, right? And mm -hmm. if we can do that work on ourselves, we can give our children a healthier beginning than we had. Mm -hmm. I, I, to me, I think that's one of the most important things about, um, you know, our kids' future is that, that acknowledgement right there. Because everything, really honestly, from that point forward, your, your career, your professional, your romantic partners, everything comes from that understanding and that healthiness right there, which is, you know, when I sit back, I, I, I probably, you know, I can't tell you exactly what happened to me, but I can tell you the type of mother that I, I had growing up and an emotional disconnect throughout my whole life. So if I had to imagine what it had been like for me, it, you know, being held probably was held, but certainly was not ever seen. And, and I see that in myself through the work, my self-work that I have done and, and what that has meant to me and what, where that's guided me in life. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, you know, I can correct all that in myself, which I'm, you know, actively doing, but it still has those little, those tingles in there because it's in, it's, you know, parts of those things are, you know, genuinely hardwired. And it's the one thing that, um, like I said, this is a scary topic or it's a scary, frightening thing for me, um, of thinking like, oh my gosh, you know, it, it happened, it's set, like it, it's baked in. And now I, you know, now I want to help unbake what I can with my own kids and with myself um, and be able to, uh, to do that, give them to understand and, and witness what security looks like more so and not living anxiously, you know, and insecure, which is, you know, the story of my life. Um, so because we have working families out there, you know, and, and, and listeners of the show that, you know, mom and dad are both working and the child, you know, through these incredibly important years of development are in the care of a daycare or maybe it's another parent uh, or, a, you know, like a grandparent or something like that. But what advice do you have to a working parent knowing that there is this monumental opportunity to do some really good things and set some really good foundation with your kids um, but you don't have them in your in your care as often. So is there a is there a way to balance if they're not getting it perhaps from a daycare uh, provider or from another family member? You know how can you? Uh, I was going to say manage the risk or you know compensate um, with your own children to make sure that at the end they're getting the security that we want them to have and that a secure attachment. Um, you know, cause I know that there's going to be people that, you know, what we're not saying is quit your jobs and stay home with your kids all the time. Um, because that, that doesn't work for everybody and that shouldn't be the only answer to it. So what do you, what do you tell working parents that they can do at this, at this stage of life when they're caregiving with a, with a daycare or somebody else? So two things. One is at the daycare, find one person who really they can attach to, who likes your kid a lot and who your kid likes a lot, and really foster that relationship. Talk about that person. Have a picture of that person holding your child on your refrigerator at their, your child's level. Make that a real relationship because kids have a hierarchy of attachment. You'll be first, but that daycare person could absolutely be in that hierarchy. Your child, see, kids can't just exist without us with no one to orient around. They need to feel, to feel safe in the world to feel like, oh, I can relax and play with this toy. They need someone. Oh, that person is going to watch out for me. Okay, I'm okay here, right? If I get hurt, that person will take care of me. 
So foster these relationships. A lot of moms tell me, I don't want her close to the nanny. I want her close to me. But she should be close to the nanny, right? You want your kid to be close to the caregiver. That's really important for them. Even if it feels like you're sad that you wish you could spend more time with your child and here's the nanny or your sister or your mother being with a kid and they they see the first step and you don't. And that is sad. And do that work yourself on you because your child's first attachment is still always going to be to you, but they do need a secure attachment to whoever is with them during the day. That's one thing. Here's the second thing. They still have a relationship with you. You're going to work in the morning. You're coming home. You're missing that time with them. But that relationship with you is still super important. We know from talking to young adults how that their parents, even when they were in daycare all day or with grandma all day and they loved grandma, it was their parents ultimately who were the biggest influences on them. Work on that relationship. Prioritize the connection. Really when set limits that's fine there's no reason not to set limits you should set limits as necessary all children need guidance they're not born knowing what to do or making wise choices set the limits but every time you set a limit offer understanding of why your child wants to do what they want to do and your child will feel understood and they will feel like oh i don't get my mom all the time or my dad if it's a dad listening here i don't get my dad all the time but you know, my dad always understands. I can talk to my mom about anything. She can't always, she doesn't always say yes to me. Sometimes I get mad at her, but she understands. And we always work things out. My mom and dad are always there for me. Imagine feeling that way. And you don't have to spend 24-7 together to feel that way. Good. Well, so then that actually um, brings me to another question that I had for you was that we know that parenting has to evolve you know, throughout a child's life because of different stages, um, obviously, you know, infant to, to teenagers and moving out and going to college. But what is a, a common theme or an overarching um, element to parenting in this way that, that carries through? And I think you've touched on it, but if you could kind of help pull it together of, you know, the, what you do specifically with your child is going to obviously be dependent on your child, but what is, what is this big change that we should see in parenting today from beginning to, you know, sending them off into the world? It's a shift away from control and toward loving guidance through connection. So the emphasis is all about connection. And if your child isn't doing what you want, so you don't have the influence from that connection, it's because your child has something big going on, some unmet need, some big emotion that they're upset. So you Emotion coach. There's actually a whole way that you can help kids with emotions. We've talked about the most obvious way, empathy. But you help kids with their emotions, and that helps guide their behavior. And obviously, to do all that, you have to self-regulate. You have to take care of you. So there are three big things. Connection, coaching, including emotion coaching and setting up the environment with rules that will help them, right? Like no screen time you know, past a certain hour. That'd be an example of a kind of coaching, setting up your environment. And then the third thing is self-regulation. It's those three things. And that's true whether they're babies or teens. Connection, coaching, your own self-regulation. 
The self-regulation is probably the, I, I would say, you know, my own experience and, and witnessing and watching other parents that are struggling, you know, with um, behavior, you know, everybody wants to call them behavior problems, right? The kid isn't doing what they want him to do is the, um, and I spoke with Pam Leo last summer um, about, you know, connection parenting in her book and, um, and adore her. She might be listening. So I'll say hi to Pam if she's actually listening to this episode. Um, but, you know, what we talked about... If you're listening, hello. I have so much admiration for your work. You're such an inspiration. Oh, she'd love that. She would love that. Yeah, <laughs> she she is pretty amazing. Um, feel very grateful that I had an opportunity to to actually speak with her. Um, but when we talked about was that really at the end of the day, this issue of behavioral problems is two humans with unmet needs. You know, you as um, a parent with this desire, whatever it is, I need to get my work done. I need to go shopping. I need to take a nap. I need, I need, I need, I need. And then a child who has their own unmet needs and they are in conflict with yours. And it's a struggle over who's going to get their needs met the best. And, and so it becomes that power struggle. And when you shift your thinking as the parent of, wait a second, my kid's coming to me because they have an unmet need and I'm upset with them for expressing that to me because I have a presently a need I'm trying to deal with. And I, you know, began in myself to sit there and go, okay, so if, if I view this conflict in this way, um, do I need to be doing what I'm doing right now or can I actually pause because I want to take care of the need of what, you know, and understand what my child's need is. And it does take this, it takes a huge amount of burden off of you, but it does require, like you said, I have to be able to sit there and reflect internally. What's my need? Why am I upset with this? It has nothing to do with the kid. It has to do with what's going on in my head. Why is this bothering me right now at this moment? Um, so, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm glad you bring that up, but it's probably going to be the biggest challenge I imagine for a parent Parents get what we're supposed to be doing differently. It's the internalization of it that's the hardest thing, I think, in my opinion. And that's the way it has been for me. Of course. Yes. Yes. And this is hard work. It is super hard to parent this way. But what happens is not only do you raise happier, healthier children with whom you have a lifelong closeness, but also when we do this work on ourselves, we're happy here. Our lives are enriched. Our lives are so much better because we've done the work. So our children are inspiring us because we love them. They're inspiring us to do this hard internal work that otherwise some of us just wouldn't do because it's hard. But our children, we would do anything for them. And this is something that is good for them that ends up being a blessing to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would like now for you to describe and talk about AHA Parenting and AHAParenting.com and the resources that you actually offer for any of the parents that are listening to this and they want to start understanding because you have a wonderful website and I'll have the link in my podcast notes. So um, we don't have to worry about, you know, you guys will be able to get to it once we're done here. But um, Dr. Laura, can you talk about what you offer on that website for parents? Well, it's a thousand pages of information for parents of all age kids from pregnancy right through as the kid, as you said, heads for college and moves out of your house, the conversations you need to have with them. So it's just a public service, free information. Um, and there's also a newsletter because who can remember to go to a website? I mean, unless you have a problem you want to look up, who can remember to regularly give yourself that support of, oh, it would inspire me to go read this. Who's got time? So I do offer a newsletter. Um, as you said, 140-something thousand people are getting it every week. About half of those people 
also sign up to get two blog posts a week. And they're just post blog posts that I put on my site, but that I send in the email. And the reason people sign up for those extra blog posts is they're sort of like blueprints for how to handle certain situations that come up with kids. And parents tell me, you know, I don't read every one, but I put them in a folder and I read them in the, on the weekend, whichever ones strike me. You know, and I say, sure, just press delete if it's too many of them. And anytime that it's an inspiration, you know, it's waiting there for you. So that's the free newsletter. And then I offer a course, an online course. So it's sort of like a, a boot camp of these ideas. But when I say a boot camp, you can completely control the amount, the timing in a sense, because once you sign up, you have lifetime access to it. So the course includes a Facebook page to get support it all, and to ask questions, but it also includes, it's uh, 12 weeks of information about specific things, like how do you set a limit so it works? How do you connect with different age kids, right? How do you self-regulate? How do you heal your own triggers, right? So how do you do self-care? So many moms are really bad at self-care, and it's so important. And it doesn't mean you have to, you know, spend money or time that you don't have. It means, it actually means integrating yourself back into your list. The same way your kid is on your list or your partner, you're on your list too. So at any rate, it's a 12-week course that gives parents support on a weekly basis. And they're also little meditations, daily meditations that are designed to rewire your brain so that you're calmer and really more self-loving and to heal shame. So those are the daily meditations that, and there are other meditations that are longer about shame and grief, but the daily meditations are four minutes long and there's 60 of them that come with the course. So five days a week, there's a daily meditation for you. And people say to me that they really feel it rewiring their brain so that at the end of the 12 weeks, they're calmer than they were. They're happier. So anyway, that's just part of what the course is. There's a full description on the website and I teach it only three times a year. So it starts in September, January, and April. Cool. Very good. And like I said, the links will be included in the podcast notes for everybody that's listening to this and, and wants to, to find out more about this. Um, well, this has been an amazing conversation and, you know, and I, you know, not just for parents, but like I said, at the beginning, educators, you know, that's one of the things too, of, you know, a lot of these, um, this mindset, bringing that to schools too, um, and, and being able to work with the students that you're around and understanding, you know, uh, that where their behaviors come from and, you know, and again, your own self-care and self-regulation, you know, definitely has a benefit, um, you know, for all of our kids, especially if, at their homes, they are not getting this type of witnessing from their own parents. You know, knowing that you have a child that shows up in your classroom and you have the capabilities to do that is just, I mean, that's pretty powerful, you know, I think. And so um, I want, you know, I want to encourage any teachers that are out there listening to this to also think about this, um, even if you don't have kids of your own. So, well, Dr. Laura, um, this is amazing. I am super grateful to have met you and to be able to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiracone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. 
Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Amit Kirkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.